Welcome to the Goodwin Turnback Museum podcast, where we bring you lectures, readings, and discussions that expand on the Goodwin Turnback Museum's commitment to scholarship, creativity, and inclusion. This week, we are bringing you readings from Natalie Diaz and Sandra Lim, as presented by the Queens College English Department and Belladonna, a feminist avant-garde writers collective. The first piece you will hear is Body of Athletics, a lyric essay written by Natalie Diaz. The second poet, Sandra Lim, will read selections from her poetry collection, The Wilderness, and a poem written in response to a Langston Hughes anthology. A quick note, Natalie Diaz uses explicit language in her essay. If you would like, skip to 22 minutes to hear Sandra Lim read. The authors are introduced by Sarita Morgan from Belladonna. Natalie Diaz was born and raised in the Fort Mojave Indian Village in Needles, California. Her first poetry collection, When My Brother Was an Aztec, was published by Copper Canyon Press. She is a recipient of fellowships and awards from numerous organizations, including Redloaf, the Lannan Foundation, and the Native Arts Council Foundation, among others. She is a current Harvard Fellow at Princeton. She also lives in Mojave Valley, Arizona, where she works to revitalize the Mojave language. What occurs to me through Natalie's poems and through her friendship is that in grief, as with desire, there's no way out. For both, the only option is to embody, and each body is a house where all doors, windows, and chimneys, every means of escape, leads always to looking back in on a beloved, on a brother, on a fractured room of the heart. Natalie's poems illustrate where we are made generous in our brokenness, and does so through language that trembles with the precision of the world's tiniest clock by which, just in time for dinner, she has prepared a feast of the things we cannot have, both devastating and abundant. I lean hungry into her poems and into a world with them in it, one that is ever revealing and reveling in all there is to be, the tenderness and hurt, the awful bestowal of infinity in every hand, line, and horizon. Please welcome Natalie Diaz. Aiwan Jahotan, Ivakidum, Hakulo Iman, Shamich Tanam, Fort Mojave Imank, Brian Shredda, Belladonna, Rachel for driving us here, Isha for coming. It's really good to read with Sandra as well. It just occurred to me that I forgot to bring your book for you to sign, but I'm actually going to read pieces from a lyric essay that I wrote. Um, there's a little bit of poetry in it, so I'm going to go ahead and start the... It's called Body of Athletics. Before every basketball game, from rec league to high school, my mother told me, knock them dead, as I walked out the door. She never said, good luck. At this point in my life, I have played basketball for longer than I have not. My mother had 11 kids. If we'd all survived, we'd have been a soccer team. We are nine now, enough for a baseball team. Albert Camus was on a soccer team, the Racing Universitare Algerios junior team. He was their goalkeeper. He said, after many years during which I saw many things, what I know most surely about morality and the duty of man I owe to sport. 
I lived years on a court, in the driveway, at a park, in a gym, on a bus or plane, to or from a game, in an ice bath, in a season, pre-season, in-season, off-season, post-season, next season. My brain, my muscles, my emotions, the way each triggers, fires, and responds have been shaped by my life as an athlete. It's hard to understand sport as game when you've been built by its rules, triumphs, and failures as I've been built. I dream of basketball all the time. In a recurring dream, my college coach, Wendy Larry, calls me back to play for her. She and I didn't get along. She thought I was wild, and I was. But I respected her and loved the game and played through many injuries for her. During my NCAA career, inner-city student-athletes were discouraged from going home over holiday and semester breaks to keep us out of trouble. Their inner-city and my res meant trouble to our coaches. They apparently meant good basketball, too, since we were all on scholarship. So when my grandfather died, I couldn't go home to the funeral. For the record, trouble happened. The cops came to my sister's house the night before the funeral. One brother went to jail, the others went to church the next day with black eyes and busted lips. My family mourned while I ran a new offense in a gym 3,000 miles away. A few weeks after the funeral, I wasn't allowed to attend. I caught an elbow in practice that severed the infraorbital artery beneath my orbital bone. I grabbed my face and fell to my knees. My team crowded around me. As I lifted my head, one teammate screamed. It was an ugly, painful injury. I had a concussion, and my bloodied black eye lasted the entire season. I didn't cry when it happened, but my tear duct was injured and wept on its own. That year, basketball was the way I mourned. Thabo Cephalosha plays for the Atlanta Hawks and is known to guard LeBron James during matchups with the Cavs. Any Cavs fans in here? Hopefully no Knicks fans, right? No? <laughs> there is a video on YouTube of LeBron crossing up Cephalosha in a game from 2014. He dribbles once to the right, then crosses and loses him left. The cross-up was so brutal it tripped up Cephalosha and he fell to the ground. The highlight reels all said LeBron broke Cephalosha's ankles with that nasty crossover move. Before going on to meet the Warriors, the Cavs met the Hawks in the 2015 Eastern Conference Finals. Cephalosha probably would have guarded LeBron, but was on the bench instead, out with the season-ending injury sustained a month before. In this series, LeBron never got a chance to break Cephalosha's ankles. The NYPD did. On the morning of April 8th, Thabo Cephalosha had his right fibula or ankle broken when a white police officer came up behind him and swept his leg out from under him. He required surgery and missed the rest of the postseason and playoffs. The Cavs swept the series, or the NYPD swept Cephalosha. That was barely covered in media, too. In The Stranger, Camus wrote, it was as if that great rush of anger had washed me clean, emptied me of hope, and gazing up at the dark sky, spangled me with its signs and stars for the first time, the first, I laid my heart open to the benign indifference of the universe. To feel it so like myself, indeed so brotherly, made me realize that I'd been happy, and that I was happy still, for all to be accomplished, for me to feel less lonely, all 
all that remained to hope was that on the day of my execution, there should be a huge crowd of spectators and that they should greet me with howls of execration. Isn't Camus describing the game in its purest form? Isn't this what fills your chest when you're at a park after dark shooting elbow jumper after elbow jumper with only the stars keeping score and more and more appear because you can't miss and nothing exists outside the concrete court, not your shut-off electricity or rifle reports or coyotes crying at the edge of the res or your friend's dad stumbling along the alleyway with a needle dangling from his arm or the fact that your cousin will overdose soon. It's just you, you triumphant and teammates hoisting you on their shoulders, carrying you out into the parking lot, down the high school hill, over the railroad tracks, along the Colorado River, off into the bright dunes of your desert, while the fans of the opposing team jeer and curse your jump shot. In the dreams, I always say yes to Coach Larry, and the dreams usually end the way my real-life basketball career ended, tearing my left anterior cruciate ligament, or ACL, medial collateral ligament, MCL, and my meniscus. Robert Griffith III, or RG3, plays for the Redskins and has knee injuries. It's a disastrous equation. A black body wearing a representation of a fragmented native body in the form of a Redskins helmet. It's a historical problem, or a long division problem. Both bodies divided by, broken by X. X equals rich white man. In a game where RG3 suffered a concussion, the Redskins reported that he was shaken up. After a week off, he returned to play. Many thought it was too soon. His coach, Mike Shanahan, formerly coached the Denver Broncos. At Denver, Shanahan had sent running back Terrell Davis back onto the field after Davis had been kneed in the helmet, suffered a migraine, and lost his vision, even after Davis told him, I can't see. Shanahan knows what all white coaches know. There is value in a brown body, the way it endures, endures, takes, it takes and takes what it is given. I've existed in a separate space of gender, not masculine or feminine, not even queer. I was athlete, one, two, three guard, wing, scorer, defender, back of the one, three, one, ball handler on the break, cutter in the triangle, expected to be strong, to take up space, to lean forward. Today, I get called sir all the time, especially in airports. At a gas station in Searchlight, Nevada, on my way to McCarran Airport, a man grabbed my arm as I walked into the women's bathroom and said, Dude, you almost went into the ladies' toilet. Ours is over there. My mother was waiting in the car, and when I told her, she said, It's just the way you hold yourself. And how exactly do I hold myself, I asked. Like you belong there. Like you know how to take care of yourself in a way that will let you stay there, she answered. Yeah, I replied but you don't have to be a man to do that. <laughs> Taking and holding space was natural to me. Boxing out, setting screen, showing big on the baseline, knocking down cutters, flashing the lane, finishing a layup through a foul. I supposed I learned spacing the way most brown and red people do, by being defensive. I learned defense on the res. When we played smear the queer, the cousins and friends we played with intentionally threw the football to my little brother John or me. 
we were mixed and lighter complexioned, and this was our penance. This was also one of the ways we learned to be fast. When John's legs slowed, when I heard him sucking air, when the pack began to catch him, I raced to the front and let him pitch me the ball. The pack then chased me instead. They didn't catch me often. Their pudgy boy bodies hadn't hardened yet, and I was more agile, even stronger. There were times I wasn't fast enough. Knees, elbows, and fists crashed down on me. At the bottom of the heap of our bodies, they pressed my face into the yellowed grass the way I would learn to press their faces into the grass and dirt when they had the ball, hollering out, smear the fucking queer. The body's demise happens in many ways. I've pushed my body beyond what I thought were my limits, and I've had my body pushed beyond where most bodies can go. Unhappy triad is a term of endearment for the type of knee injury I sustained. I was raised Catholic. My ACL became the father, my MCL the son, and my meniscus was the Holy Ghost. Today, if I run more than three, three miles, my meniscus feels like a Holy Ghost, something shot and gone a long time ago. Spike Lee knows basketball is holy. He created Jesus Shuttleworth, and he got game. There is nothing I am more confident in or vulnerable in than my own body. One knows the body differently when they break it, whether one's own or someone else's. RG3 went back onto the field without a doctor checking his knee. Only a real body needs a doctor, and he is not a real body. He is a dark machine. A body of dusk and sinew must go and go until it cannot. The patellar tendon functioning as my ACL is called an autograft because it came from my own body. Harvest is the word doctors use. My patellar tendon was harvested from my body. Harvesting is associated with natives maybe because of corn or cornucopias or Thanksgiving and Indian summers or Leinenkugel's wheat beer. My casino has a native harvest buffet. But harvest also means sword and cut. I wish these were the words that linked us to it. Some missing or deceased person's bodies or body parts can only be identified by the serial numbers or the surgical hardware implanted in their bodies from reconstructions and replacements. Coach Larry taught us defense is the best offense. If memory is passed down in DNA, I learned defense long ago from my ancestors, from all they had to defend themselves and our people against. From a CNN article, who's more likely to be killed by police? In fact, despite the available statistical evidence, most people don't know that Native Americans are most likely to be killed by police compared with other racial groups. Native Americans make up 0.8% of the population, yet account for 1.9% of police killings. We're killed at a, a rate higher than we exist. What will my DNA give to my children? Poetry, my long arms and relentless defense, my sadness, Will their bodies know to sweat when they are pulled over to be still? Coach Norman Dale, has anyone here seen Hoosiers? It's like, a, it's like old school for you guys, huh? It's like an oldie but goodie. Yeah, yeah. You guys should watch Hoosiers. So. Coach Norman Dale, played by Gene Hackman in Hoosiers, told his team, I've seen you guys can shoot, but there's more to the game than shooting. There's fundamentals and defense. I agree. Defense is the best offense, unless offense is the best offense. I am tired of defending. I've got a lot of offense in me. This page is one kind of offense. Bodies are being broken all over the country. 
Native and African-American women killed in jail cells. Native women disappearing and reappearing as fragmented body parts washing up on shores of rivers across the Americas. Black men and boys, Native men and boys catching all the bullets a cop can throw. At Denver, Shanahan coached John Elway, who played his entire career without an ACL. Possibly Shanahan equally disrespects black and white bodies, but I don't buy it. All season, I watched Shanahan try to break RG3. Finally, I watched him succeed. I watched the black body fall. At the 1912 Stockholm Olympics, Jim Thorpe's shoes were stolen. He won one of two gold medals competing in a borrowed shoe and a shoe he found in the trash can. In the photo taken after the race, he is wearing two different shoes. One is too big, so he has extra socks on that leg. My siblings and I shared shoes as kids. Five of us are within six years of each other. John, Desiree, Gabriel, Bermino, me. We played in different divisions for the city rec league up on the hill, took turns with a single pair of shoes. It was embarrassing. Is this why we played so hard? To forget everyone saw us poor in our bare socks waiting for our turn to wear the shoes? I distrusted kids with fancy shoes, so I worked hard against them, ran faster, stole the ball every chance I got, until eventually I was better. The attributes that make us lauded on the courts, fields, in rings, quickness, fight, aggressiveness, unwillingness or inability to quit, pride and shame, strength, quick thinking, fearlessness, the way we know and own and carry our bodies, the muscle of us, the beauty and shock of our brown bodies gleaming in motion, the attributes that make us hunted and killed off the courts, fields, in rings. Quickness, fight, aggressiveness, unwillingness or inability to quit, pride and shame, strength, quick thinking, fearlessness, the way we know and own and carry our bodies, the muscle of us, the beauty and shock of our brown bodies gleaming in motion. Like bulls we are. When yoked, we are beautiful. When refusing to be yoked, we are wild and whippable, butcherable. Tabo Cephalosha testified that the police officer who came up behind him and swept his leg out from beneath him said, with or without a badge, I'm going to fuck you up, and I can fuck you up. The middle third of my patellar tendon was used along with bone fragments from each end. A surgeon drilled tunnels in my bone to thread the tendon through, then screwed the bone fragments and tendon into my tibia and femur, where my ACL used to be. If I'd had an allograft, it would have come from a cadaver. In Mojave, we burn our dead. Transplanting tissue from a dead body into mine wasn't an option. In fact, if I'd done it right, done it the Mojave way, I'd have had a small funeral pyre for my ACL, and it would be waiting on the other side for me when I passed on. Now I'll arrive to the afterlife without an ACL. I'll have to have this surgery all over again after I die. Because I am a native woman born on the reservation, I am more likely to be assaulted, raped, or disappeared, and to die as a result. According to the Department of Justice in 2009, when U.S. Attorney General Eric Holder was briefed by the FBI that one in three native women are physically assaulted in their lifetime, and on some reservations the murder rate for women is ten times higher than the national average, he didn't believe the statistics were correct. He asked them to fact-check the numbers. In a UN document titled Sport and Gender Empowering Girls and Women, female athletes showed increased self-esteem, self-confidence, and a sense of control over their bodies. 
According to their findings, sports also foster positive changes in gender norms, giving girls and women greater safety and control over their lives. There are myriad articles and studies that claim I am less likely to be in an abusive relationship because I am an athlete. If the statistics of me being assaulted, raped, and disappeared as a native woman meet head to head with the statistics say, saying that I am less likely to be abused and will have greater safety because I am a female athlete, which statistics will win? And if I lose that matchup, if my body is found the way most murdered native women's bodies are found, discarded, decomposed on a rarely traveled tract of land at the bottom of a riverbed in pieces by accident because nobody is looking, it is quite possible that my body will be difficult to identify. If my body is difficult to identify, then the titanium screws in my knee will become significant. The authorities will interview my family and look through my and other Native women's medical records. They will see that I have had surgery on my left knee. They'll check the left knee of the body they found for signs of a broken tibial condyle, for titanium screws and their serial numbers. Basketball in this instance will not have saved my life, but it will have saved me from being added to the thousands of missing Native women in the Americas. The King of Sweden called Jim Thorpe the world's greatest athlete the week he won two golds for the U.S. track and field team. The next, week, the next week, Thorpe had to return his medals according to Rule 26 of the eligibility rules of the International Olympic Committee. It was discovered he'd received a small amount of pay from two semi-pro baseball teams. It was about rules, they said, not about him being native. 26 is a bad number for natives. A deck of cards has 26 red cards and 26 black cards, but really, all the cards are white. On the 26th day of December, 1862, Honest Abe Lincoln ordered the hanging of 38 Dakotas. He ordered them to be hanged. The periodic table is an ordering of elements. 26 is the atomic number of the element iron. The word for iron or metal in the Mojave language is also the word for bullet because this is how iron or metal first came to us, like bullets still come to us through our bodies. In 26 years, I will still have played basketball for longer than I have not played. I had a lateral x-ray taken of my left knee and it looked like there were two 22 caliber rounds lodged in me, except for the deep threads of the titanium screws. I would buy a ticket to watch six foot seven Cephalosha take that five foot seven officer with or without a badge out onto the court and work him. No, school him. No, take him to the rim. No, break his ankles. No, fuck him up. Asked to describe his relationship with Shanahan, RG3 replied, heartbreaking. I never thought much about what my mother meant all those times before all those games when she told me, knock him dead. Now I think she meant, this isn't just a game for you. Don't let them hurt you even if it means hurting them first. I think she meant live. It's funny how a game can teach you that. Thank you very much. Thank you, Natalie. Sandra Lim is the author of Loveliest Grotesque and the Wilderness, selected by Louise Gluck for the 2013 Barnard, Barnard, 
Barnard Women Poets Prize and recipient of the Levi Reading Prize from Virginia Commonwealth University. She is a recipient of fellowships from McDowell Colony, Vermont Studio Center, and Getty Research Institute, among others. My introduction to Sandra was through her collection, The Wilderness, where her poems are simultaneously acts of abstraction and of critical rematerialization, oscillations between thought and feeling, and making of space that insists on the absolute presence of an unknown, space for discretion, for an extraverbal reality that exceeds the traumatic consumption of reason, a reality in which words are not passageways, but fields of investigation where language, same as every hard-earned fruit, ripens, or in other words, returns to its pit of play and betrayal. In her essay, Making Space, a notebook, published in a commemorative chaplet for tonight's reading, Sandra writes, quote, with a new place can come new instincts. Right now, in this becalmed space, in this state which feels like an American theme of some sort, I feel ultimately humored by the world. I can think of, oh, end quote, I can think of no greater work for a poem, no greater gift from a poet than, ushering, than the ushering of faculties previously unimaginable. Thank you, Sandra, for this work, for its careful midwifery of language, for every ultimate and inconceivable world that makes possible our next. Please welcome Sandra Lim. Hi, thank you. Can you hear me? Here? All right. Thank you, Soretta, for that beautiful introduction. Thank you, Natalie, for reading with me tonight. Belladonna, Ryan, Ryan's class. Um, I'm going to read tonight pretty much exclusively from the wilderness. I will, I don't have a lot of guess explanatory banter between poems so I'm just gonna read the poems mainly from the front section of the book and um, perhaps one one new poem to conclude I'll read the epigraphs for this book the first one is from Holly the character played by Sissy Spacek in the movie Badlands the world was like a faraway planet to which I could never return. I thought, what a fine place it was, full of things that people can look into and enjoy. And the second epigraph is from John Berryman's poem, Homage to Mistress Bradstreet. Pioneering is not feeling well. And the third is uh, a Jewish-Dutch proverb the greater the spirit, the greater the beast. So those are sort of what's hovering um, behind these poems, above these poems. Small Container Fury. Rembrandt paints his carcass of beef. You see a little blood near the poppies and don't think of detachment. Humbert and his girl are driving across America. One has a thirst so unslakeable, one walks right into the river. How exciting spring is, and how errant, holding out love and death like a platter of the daintiest cakes. As I do my work, I think, let me topple, wear thin, let the world eat me, but then let the world sob, not me. 
snowdrops. Spring comes forward as a late winter confection, and I cannot decide if it advances a philosophy of meekness or daring. This year's snowdrops, is it that they are spare and have a slightly fraught lucidity, or are they proof that pain too can be ornate? Even a propped skull is human nature, and its humor is monstrous, rich with an existence that owes nothing to anyone. Fat little pearls against the ice, battering softly, try even fewer qualities. To say that you love someone or something to death is to hover around the draw of irrevocability. More faith is asked of us, a trained imagination against the ice white. Human interest story. Snow would have been breaking the drifts that day on a mild mood. My father was boarding at the home of a missionary couple in Seoul, getting by on books and the radio and cheap noodles. His older brother hanged himself that winter in Pusan. They would say afterward that it was a plain death, funded by bad numbers, some selfishness, unusual cold. Think of a needle dropped into the sea. He had a pleasantly objective feeling about himself that morning as the early sky gently ripped into red. He thought about business English, the truth of money. Across town, a diary opened, and there were the white, cooling coals in barrels. There was a pretty young wife and one serious boy and one very quiet girl. They awakened one day to a new planet where the spaces between people appeared slightly widened. Maybe you can't penetrate events with reportage, but facts have a sly, unanswerable texture that appears social. To relieve ourselves of open-ended narrative, we read into the winter stars all evening. There are just stars and stars and stars. We know what it's like to fall in love and be disassembled, but we still want to pull death right off the bodies of one another. These were spectacular nights, said my father. They were full of philosophy and political theory noisy reversals, French movies. The romantic grace we comprehend sits with ease in the real world. It is almost nothing. Now he is carrion, stitched forever in the cramp of a trial. No one can evict us from books, he used to say, running through astonishment at full speed. Nature Mort, or Still Life. Is that the elevator? <laughs> I feel like if I 
do something wrong, it opens up and I get sucked back into the thing. Okay, nature more, it's still life. You are given two things today. One is an angry nail in your side. Changing what you are able to sense is the second thing you are gifted. Nature is always a referred existence, writes Emerson, never a presence. Who knows where the time goes, sings Sandy Denny, who can bear to hear it. One reaches the moment when one loses words in the pastoral, in the cosmic. Think about the scars on the planets and how patient those stars seem to be. I'm painting the natural landscape with my eyes closed today. It's like writing a poem with all the crossouts left in. An expression like, never thought I'd see the day. Nature that begins with unknowable and ends with more monotonous hills. Today, I want to be the country fried philosoph or a Hudson River school painting. When this life is over, describe to me how its concave and convex forms are and are not. We live amid surfaces, writes Emerson, and the true art of life is to skate well on them. Didn't like Emerson. <laughs> Wildlife. I can see drafty stars drift inside my skull. Roots and bowls and boughs and leaves press at the backs of my eyes. A spider rambles inside my body and scuttles out of my mouth. This suit is in agony. Black flies from the creek fall into my teacup. Keep one eye on the world, they say. Certainty. Perhaps you can tell children that the world is always a more beautiful place than you can suppose, and then you release them into their future, the black row of trees in the distance. She died suddenly in midwinter, in the same bed in which her husband died years earlier. It still sagged on his side. Her second husband remained in Japan with his first family. She used to say, what my three girls do when they are on their own is unimaginable to me. My mother is the middle daughter, a garden of inaudible tunes. The four of them lived in a mean house in Seoul. One yellowing picture of my grandmother remains and her face turns away from the camera as the rabbit senses the hound. She was said to be a solitary eater, an inner thing. What did she promise the world that she wasn't able to make good on? A child who abruptly feels the frontiers of experience assert themselves in her. At the funeral, my mother cries so hard she can't feel her hands for days. It explains how she scratches herself raw, meaningless. 
You have always believed these are your themes. Fate, the negative pleasures of dipping oneself in acid. You think it will rescue you from your simplicity, remarks my mother from the doorway. But art is never the ace in the hole. I'm not a stupid child. I'm not even a child any longer with her hesitant, then terrible certainty that loss is tragic, not only pointless. When she is lonely, my mother cooks, and when she is happy, she knows to hide it. Amor Fati. Inside every world, there is another world trying to get out, and there is something in you that would like to discount this world. The stars could rise in darkness over heartbreaking coasts, and you would not know if you were ruining your life or beginning a real one. You could claim professional fondness for the world around you. The pictures would dissolve under the paint coming alive and you would only feel a phantom skip of the heart, absorbed so in the colors. Your disbelief is a later novel emerging in the long, long shadow of an earlier one. Is this the great world, which is whatever is the case? The sustained helplessness you feel in the long emptiness of days is matched by the new suspiciousness and wrath you wake to each morning. Isn't this a relationship with your death too, to fall in love with your inscrutable life? Your teeth fill with cavities. There is always unearned happiness for some and the criminal feeling of solitude. Always everyone lies about his life. I'm going to read a section, a couple of sections from a, a longer poem <clears throat> in the book called um, Homage to Mistress Bradstreet from the John Berryman poem. But I think they can be understood or stand on their own. This is two, part two called Now Voyager. I first thought her a pure fury or last blues or everything in the wide world that was cold, inscrutable, and beastly. Sometimes she was innocent of metaphor, just a girl disappearing with the phone into a closet. Other times she would lead me to the edge of my human being where the meaning would be seeping away and say with a flourish, not yet enjoyed. And it was a relief to be someone so angry, to put across the distortions without and within. A journey like this appears to hold out the promise of a rescue, an immense life in the formlessness. 
So we come to stand on the deck of an aged ocean liner. The sea hoards nothing. Our senses are alive and bright. The captain says we are opening into a territory of raw wishes and the merely beautiful. Past heartbreak, transcendence, past return. How could this territory have anything to do with us? There is something exciting about it, nevertheless, something mistaken and wholly familiar, hatchet-minded and eager with beginning. Seven, <clears throat> poetry, the author to her book. It's the thing I choose, a nice bed in the hospital from which to write about spring snow on the forest floor. And then part nine, which is the last poem in the longer poem, it's called Black Painting. The night always knows when to complete itself, just before dawn. The sun will never know its ambitious secrets. Though left so long and so far from light in this wild place, the night becomes strange. Its aesthetic satisfactions may insufficiently repay the wind blowing through a little soul, mortality a frontier in the arc of it, waiting to see how we solved being alive. O oh, night, in this lunacy, we could be so happy together, thinking about, thinking about the sun's brightest provocations. And I'll just read um, two more from the book. Envoi Lazarus. Lazarus woke to the miracle of no longer fearing failure. He lifted his two sides from the ground as he tried to speak, one part gathering darkness, one part humming. When he walked out, he glimpsed a world never tried. At the crucial point, there is yet more than one way of proceeding, but it seldom appears that way. And this, this is the last poem in the book. It's called Cliffs. Words are afraid up here. The rapture and the terrifying exposure. Strange birds roosting. A human voice shouting a world's end shout. Snow hurries to the meeting, wanting to cover the waking in my body. I could fill up the sea with this waking. The outlook is thrilling. It satisfies. It goes even further than the view from the heights of love. It eats the roof off the sky. And I'm going to read, um, I'm a very slow writer, but this is a new poem. I was asked um, to write a response for an anthology on uh, Langston Hughes. The explanation takes longer than, the poem is so tiny. <laughs> I'll just read it. 
I do not wish to lie with my own kith and kin. It is not true that it doesn't matter where you live. Deracination, my little Apollo. Thank you very much. The Goodwin Turnback Museum would like to thank Zoretta Morgan of Belladonna and Ryan Black of the Queens College English Department for sponsoring this event. We would also like to thank Natalie Diaz and Sandra Lim. For more information about Belladonna, visit their website, belladonnaseries.org. To hear about upcoming events at the Goodwin Turnback Museum, visit gtmuseum.org. Follow us on Twitter at Goodwin Turnback and find us on Facebook. This podcast is a production of the Goodwin Turnback Museum. It was created by Joseph Petzner and Shah Khan, and the music was composed by Federico Zagero. All students at Queens College, CUNY.